Previously on Inhospitable. Hello? Hi, Jill. Yeah? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Jill um, moved to Cary, and I think we initially became acquainted with him. He just basically turned up at our church on a Sunday. I would describe him as dedicated, uh, consistent, loyal. He was always trying to, to learn more and kind of embodied that spirit, you know, that America says it values um, of self-improvement and bootstraps and all that. If there was anybody who actually did that, it showed the kid do. At some point, you know, I remember at some point that in the West, I had a conversation with them. They told him that, no, you know, his case is not a reality. It's not, it's not a priority. You have to just, you know, get the file ready and, uh, you know, it's going to work, you know. They made you think that maybe uh, it was going to be all right? The last appointment that we'd gone to, I remember distinctly Officer Kelly telling us that deportation was not a thing we had to worry about. She told me, okay, uh, you know what, what is going to happen? And that's when he, he started to explain that uh, I'm going to be dead. Now it's really crazy for me. Yeah, I was crushed. <laughs> yeah. I remember sitting in the conference room, and I remember when Jill called um, for the first time from York Detention Center in South Carolina. Um, and the sadness and anger and fear that was in his voice, the distress, um, when he said, Pastor, Pastor, they trapped me. immigration attorney said the Republic of Congo sponsored his visa, then turned around and pulled it not long after he arrived in the U.S. He refused instructions from his government to testify falsely that the government was uninvolved in a, in a massacre that occurred. The lawyer... Last time on Inhospitable, we heard the story of Jill's unexpected detention by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Jill had spent years in the United States under an order of supervision, which allowed him to work and live with temporary documentation. For over 10 years, he cooperated with all of ICE's demands and worked and lived as any other American. After the Trump administration radically altered temporary statuses in the United States, Jill Bikindu was tricked and trapped by ICE and put in jail. There are no clear and simple pathways to citizenship in the United States, but avenues to temporary status at least used to be more available. How, then, did Jill Bikindu first arrive in the United States? The story begins across the world, in the Republic of Congo, Brazzaville. So the first thing I want to ask you about is, um, can you talk about your life in Brazzaville before you came to the U.S. originally? Yeah, uh, originally, you know, I was um, I was living a normal life, you know. 
Um, I was working as a civil servant, so yeah, it, it was pretty normal life, even if you know it's not, uh, it's not always you know the way you want it, and uh, you know, and uh, we always face poverty, you know, but uh, it was it was a normal life. Well, I mean, I can, I can talk about Congo uh, for a long time, as it turns out. Um, <clears throat> so the kind of the, the key thing, or there are a few key things to know. This is Dr. Brett Carter, an assistant professor at the School of International Relations at the University of Southern California, and an expert on the history of Central Africa, particularly in Congolese history. The first thing he wants us to know is that there are two Congos. Right, so the, there are two Congos, the Republic of Congo, which was colonized um, by the French government, and then, of course, the Democratic Republic of Congo, also for a time known as Zaire, which was colonized by the Belgian government. Um, so uh, the Republic of Congo uh, claimed independence uh, from the French in 1960. Uh, there was sort of a, a period of political turbulence that followed. The two countries, the Republic of Congo, with its capital in Brazzaville, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, with its capital across the river in Kinshasa, have established boundaries based first on their history of European colonization. The Congolese achieved independence in the 1960s during the Cold War, but not without bloodshed. The main political factions in the Republic of Congo have strong geographic centers of gravity, a northern faction and a southern faction. In 1967, the northern faction seized power. Denis Sassungesso was a leader of that northern faction. Uh, Denis Sassungesso was part of uh, that clique in 1967 and then seized power himself in 1979. So Denis Sassungesso, between 1979 uh, and then 1992, um, operates, uh, you know, an extraordinarily repressive government. Uh, in that, he's supported uh, by both uh, the French government and the Soviet government. The French government, uh, because he provides them uh, with oil at well below the market price, uh, and the Soviets, uh, because he effectively kind of declares the Congolese government uh, for the Eastern Bloc. He's supplied uh, with weapons from both governments. Um, so, you know, the Berlin Wall falls in 1989, the third wave of democracy uh, hits the African continent. At this point, uh, you know, food prices are soaring. His provision of weapons from the Soviet Union is obviously drying up. Uh, and the government is effectively bankrupt due, frankly, in large part to his own economic mismanagement. So at this point, uh, there are a series of mass protests that rock Brazzaville. Sassou is forced to call a national conference in 1991, at which he effectively relinquishes sovereignty, right? He kind of, he declares the representatives uh, of civil, kind of the civil society organizations who attended the national conference effectively sovereign themselves. At this point, the national conference uh, organizes the country's you know, first really totally free and fair election uh, that occurs in 1992. Sassoon Gesso obviously lost the election in 1992. He knew he didn't have a chance of winning because of how mismanaged the country had become. 
As the democratically elected government took power, Sasungeso began plotting a return. Plans that would come to fruition only a few years later. So in, in the 1990s, basically around 1994, 1995, he begins exploring whether uh, the French government, in particular French President Jacques Chirac, would actually uh, support him in uh, an effort to re-seize power by force. We are a country where there have been having political trouble, you know. This is Jill. Uh, so we, we got things like civil war, things like that. The civil war of, uh, that was uh, 1998, like a civil war here. Mm -hmm. so, um... The 1998 civil war began in 97, but the dramatic violence carried over into 1998 and beyond. So whenever Congolese citizens talk about the June 5th war of 1997, uh, which lasted between the June 5th and, uh, say, mid-October, um, you know, this was really Sasso and Gesso's effort to, to reclaim power by force, again, supported uh, by the French government um, with weapons, uh, with finances, and supported also by the, the Angolan government in a really decisive military intervention between mid-September and mid-October mid 1997. So Sasso and Gesso uh, retakes Brazzaville in October 15th, 1997, or around October 15th, I should say, 1997. And after that, he authorizes a three to four day pillage of Brazzaville's southern neighborhoods. Now, he does this for two reasons. One, economically, you know, he, he has to compensate his soldiers, right, who've just fought on his behalf. And, you know, one kind of cheap way for Sasson Gesser to do so is to simply let his uh, soldiers, again, all of northern extraction, basically pillage the southern neighborhoods, take whatever they want. Um, steal whatever they want, etc. The other reason he authorizes uh, this three to four day pillage of southern neighborhoods by northern soldiers is frankly to punish um, ethnic Lari and other Congolese citizens of southern extraction. Like a civil war here. Mm -hmm. So um, we fled, we fled uh, because for, the, for security, you know, we fled and uh, we end up, ended up. Uh, to uh, the other Congo, you know, he went there yeah, as a refugee with my family. Jill is a member of the Lari ethnic group Carter mentioned before, the victims of the pillaging after Sasungeso retook Brazzaville. The Lari became Sasungeso's primary focus of violence and repression as a symbol to anyone who would resist his regime. So as a result, uh, of this, of this three-day pillage, the southern neighborhoods of Brazzaville are essentially emptied out. Southern uh, residents of those southern neighborhoods basically flee into the forests. The government sets up what it calls humanitarian corridors, um, you know, as sort of a way, you know, through which uh, residents uh, of the southern neighborhoods can flee outside Brazzaville. Now, once the Sassungesso military sets up these humanitarian corridors, those southern citizens are effectively defenseless. And so these humanitarian corridors become the locations of a series of massacres 
that the Sassoon military perpetrates um, against uh, ethnic Lari and, and other Southern citizens. Now, this, this kind of these sorts of atrocities continue um, certainly through the end of 1997 into 1998 and then uh, 1999 as well. Finally, by, you know, uh, say, spring 1999, the government has persuaded the United Nations that refugees uh, who fled to Kinshasa during the 1997 civil war could indeed return uh, to Brazzaville and, and uh, other parts of the country. So the UN in Kinshasa agrees to repatriate Congolese refugees from Kinshasa to Brazzaville. When these uh, refugees, again, all of Southern extraction, arrive in Brazzaville, um, they do so at the seaport, right, which is collected, which is colloquially known as the beach. And uh, at some point, you know, the government here was asking the people who, who fled the country uh, back because, uh, you know, uh, there was no more war and the peace was uh, secured for the people. And, uh, you know, we knew that they had nothing to do with that. You know, there was, you know, no problem. So for them, they, 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 they can come back. Oh, I was I was no military, you know, I was not in the, you know, like uh, a politician or something like that. So we accepted to come back. But the thing is, uh, when uh, I came back, you know, we were uh, crossing, you know, the, the Congo River, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, uh, our capital city, Brazzaville and Kinshasa, the capital city of DRC, you know, it's just a separate Congo River. So, right. we cross. Jill had no political affiliation in the Civil War. He was not a part of any resistance to the Sassoon Gesso regime. His family was simply caught in the middle. Because of their ethnicity, that of the Lari, they escaped to Kinshasa across the river from their home. In 1999, it finally seemed like the violence had died down and they could come home. The United Nations even seemed to condone it. However, they did not receive a warm welcome. Because, unfortunately, when we got here, I was, uh, I was uh, arrested because of um, trouble connection, I mean, trouble, uh, you know, implications of the conflict and things like that. You know, I was arrested as a man because most of the, the men that was uh, crossing was was arrested, and uh, uh, because um, the government uh, think that uh, those who were fight, you know, they were people from our tribe, so we may, you know, we may be those fighters. So I was arrested, and that had the trouble. I could have been died because people were, were being killed because they they were detained by you know they were detained, but they were they disappeared. They, they were disappearing because uh, you know uh, people were 
coming to, to get them and, uh, you know, make them disappear. I mean, disappear, but I, we know that they were being killed. Yeah. Now, when they arrive, the Sasungesu military separates uh, women and children from, uh, say, teenage men, young men, and in some cases, middle-aged men as well. Women, women are, uh, many of the women are subjected to uh, sexual assault, various forms of sexual violence. Um, the men are, the, the men and teenagers, those who could conceivably take up arms against the Sasungesu government are pushed to one side and then massacred. Um, this uh, is now referred to as uh, the massacre at the beach. I had a trouble. I could have been dying because people were, were being killed because they, they were detained by, you know, they were detained, but they were they disappeared. They, they were disappearing because, uh, you know, uh, people were coming to get them and, uh, you know, make them disappear. I mean, disappear, but I, we know that they were being killed. Yeah. So me, my chance was the fact that uh, when um, those people came to, to get, I mean, that was uh, like, uh, you know, God was with me. I got that inspiration to talk because some, 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 someone, I mean, something was telling me you, you need to talk. So I talked to God. I talked to them. I told them that I, I, I'm someone who worked for the government, you know. Uh, I told them that I worked for them. And, uh, you know, uh, I gave them all all the references, you know, they could, could have, they could be, you know, to be convinced of that. So that's why, you know, I was put aside. So I was the only one talking then. I was put aside. And the other guys, they disappeared. They threatened me, you know, they, they let me go. So after that, you know, I, I resumed to work normally. Jill returned to work, having convinced the Sasungeso government that he was not a threat, but he inevitably faced a choice. As international attention began to focus on the Congolese government, the massacre he witnessed became a central issue. Would he stay as the gaze of the world and his government turned to him, or would he flee? Ultimately, Jill knew he had to seek asylum. chance to go for asylum. But if you look at the records, not very many people are allowed to stay once they go to court. But what happens is they'd go into — they were using asylum. First of all, they were told what to say by lawyers and others. Read this statement. You read the statement, and now you're seeking asylum. The whole thing is ridiculous, and we won't put up with it. Asylum policy in the United States has been in the news during the Trump administration because of repeated attempts to change it. That may give the impression that the asylum system is newly broken, but it has, in fact, been highly dysfunctional and inconsistent for years. Asylum is one of the few pathways to enter the United States legally for most immigrants. 
the United Nations Refugee Convention of 1951 expressly forbade member nations from forcing someone fleeing persecution to return to a place where they would be in danger. Asylum then allows people who do not have express legal justification to enter the United States to stay here anyway, because to deport them would be to put them in danger. It is not illegal to come seeking asylum, but the American government has made it increasingly difficult over the years. Sure, yeah, so the asylum process, there's actually two ways, two sort of types of applying for asylum. Dr. Casey Bishop, a professor in the Immigration Law Clinic at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, there's an affirmative asylum process and the defensive asylum process. The affirmative asylum process is that if you have entered, you have to be, have left your home country. So asylum, somebody who's seeking asylum, you're essentially trying to prove that you are an, a refugee under the law, um, which means that you have a well-founded fear of returning to your home country for, that you either have been persecuted or have a well-founded fear of future persecution on account of one of five protected grounds. So race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Um, so if you, you, for affirmative asylum, if you are here in the United States and have come here um, and have not been in a situation where you have been picked up in crossing the border or have presented yourself right away as someone who's seeking asylum, you may apply for asylum um, within one year of arriving. Um, and that's considered an affirmative asylum application. Affirmative asylum applications aren't handled in a courtroom. Instead, they're handled in asylum offices where individual officers handle the asylum claim. Dr. Bishop explained that while an attorney can be present, this is primarily an inquisitive process, not a defensive one. Um, they are adjudicated in an informal interview setting so that somebody submits the Form I-589 along with all sorts of supporting documentation and a personal statement, affidavit or a declaration, and then uh, the submits all this evidence and then gets a chance to tell the story in an in, informal interview. I say informal because it's in somebody in an asylum officer's, officer's office. Mm. It's not adversarial in the same way that like a court proceeding right. is, etc. Um, the officer is giving the asylum applicant an opportunity to tell his or her story. Um, if there is an attorney present, then the attorney has a, sometimes has an option to interject or intervene, correct or clarify or suggest questions that the officer might ask to elicit information about the story and sometimes can do a closing argument, but generally the attorney is not doing a whole lot of talking. It's the uh, client applicant at that point. When the asylum officer hears the story, they have a decision to make. They can grant asylum 
or they can refer the case to immigration court, at which point the asylum claim goes from being affirmative to defensive. Many immigrants, however, don't get the chance for an affirmative asylum claim. They are immediately placed into removal proceedings and forced to defend their claim to asylum, with or without a lawyer. That then is sort of a defensive asylum application claim that when somebody's in immigration court because they're defending, they're seeking asylum as a defense to deportation. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are crossing the border and presenting, whether presenting themselves at a port of entry or being picked up when they cross the border, um, or yeah, or even if they're entering lawfully but then presenting themselves right away. Um, are often put into are put into removal proceedings and so have the opportunity to raise an asylum claim in front of the immigration judge but they don't get that sort of opportunity to apply first at an asylum office Um, so a defensive asylum claim can arise just when somebody is immediately put into removal proceedings and then can apply for asylum or when somebody's referred from an asylum office. Once you're in immigration court, the linchpin of any asylum claim is persecution. USCIS official documentation describes it as persecution due to race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. The trouble is, not everyone believes the persecuted. But the truth is, whether you have a lawyer or not, your odds of success to a frightening degree may be dictated by where you are. In San Francisco, immigrants are deported in 36% of cases. In Charlotte, the number jumps to 84%. In New York City, only 24% of cases result in deportation. In Atlanta, the rate is almost 90%. There are massive geographical disparities when it comes to deportation cases. Some regions of the country have courts and judges that are incredibly hostile to immigrants and incredibly unlikely to believe an immigrant's story. The same is true for asylum claims. In 2017, Reuters followed the story of two women from Honduras who had remarkably similar stories. They both tried to oust violent gangs from a school campus and both became targets of gang violence. Both fled with their children via Mexico to the United States. Coincidentally, they met when detained in Hidalgo, Texas, and applied for asylum while detained at Atresia, New Mexico. But then, one had an asylum hearing in San Francisco, and the other in Charlotte, North Carolina. The woman in California got asylum, and the woman in North Carolina did not. It's not just different courts. We have uh, quite a number of asylum, I mean, of immigration courts all over the country. Hans Christian Lennartz. But it's a discrepancy among judges within a court. For example, in the New York Immigration Court, which has a huge number of judges, you can imagine New York City, uh, there are some judges who grant something close to 90% of the asylum cases that come before them, and there are others who grant something like 8%. Uh, It's extraordinary, the difference. Reuters found out that the judge in Charlotte, Stuart Couch, orders asylum seekers deported almost 90% of the time. The judge in San Francisco, on the other hand, deports asylum seekers only 43% of the time. Judge Olivia Casson in New York City deports asylum seekers 7% of the time, 
and Judge Monique Harris in Houston deports them 93% of the time. Well, um, Stewart has one of the lowest rates of approvals of asylum applications in the country. That's Marty Rosenbluth, the only immigration attorney who lives in Lumpkin, Georgia, where Stewart Detention Center, one of the most notorious immigration detention centers, is located. The average immigration courts as a whole, the average approval of asylum claims um, is around 45%. Um, Stewart's five, yeah. 5%. Um, so we're way, way lower than um, other immigration courts. Um, cases that I would win, you know, hands down, slam dunk in other immigration courts um, just don't fly here. And it's Atlanta is the same. Charlotte's the same. Um, Atlanta, Charlotte, and Stewart are all under the jurisdiction of the Atlanta court. Um, so they tend to make decisions on a very similar uh, basis. The principal organization that gathers this data called uh, TRAC, it's out of Syracuse University. Hans Christian Lenartz. But uh, they have tried to control their uh, statistics for the quality of cases or that kind of thing. And uh, since cases are randomly assigned to immigration judges, any judge that handles more than just a few dozen cases is likely to see the same mix of cases in terms of merits and uh, origin points for the aliens who are claiming asylum and so forth as any other judge. So controlling for that doesn't seem to at all explain the wide variance. It seems to be an issue mainly of the extent to which a judge is willing to believe the word of the person claiming asylum. Yeah, so the asylum is really discretionary. Casey Bishop. When it comes down to it, um, although there are certainly elements that somebody has to meet in terms of what there's a lot of discretion within that in terms of what amounts to persecution, what qualifies as a particular social group, what qualifies, and then there's a huge, credibility is a huge aspect of it. So there's a lot of discretion then that judges have in terms of deciding when somebody is credible or not. Um, and we do see that the a variance in terms of around the country. So the asylum offices are regional, the courts are also regional. Not every state has its own immigration court. Mm. Um, and so those can be regional and it does, there is not just a jurisdictional piece in terms of what state or what immigration court does it vary, but by judge. The grant rates will vary quite significantly. It appears as though many judges have made up their minds about how many people are truthfully seeking asylum and how many are not. The variation of asylum grants is just too wide to be random, and it appears to come down to the extraordinary bias, in one direction or another, of individual immigration judges. Um, one of the cases I had down here, um, which thank the Lord, we ended up winning on appeal. But um, it was a guy from Somalia, had been kidnapped by Al-Shabaab, 
Um, they threatened to kill him if he didn't join al-Shabaab. Um, he was kept in an underground cell for two and a half weeks. He was beaten and tortured on a daily basis. Um, they showed him corpses of people who had been tortured to death. Um, and um, eventually he, you know, he agreed. You know, he said, OK, OK, I'll join al-Shabaab. I just want to go say um, goodbye to my my mother. Um, and they said, OK, well, you have to come back in three days. So, of course, he didn't come back in three days. Um, so they came looking for him. And his family was hiding him in this, like, mud hut where you couldn't tell from the outside that there was, a, like, a hidden room, but he could see out. Um, and he saw his grandfather and his best friend um, executed in front of him um, because they wouldn't reveal where he was hiding. And the judge said, well, I don't think that reaches the level of persecution. <laughs> Yeah. On, on uh, what planet? Yeah. So, I mean, in order to get, in order to show that you have a reasonable fear of being killed, you pretty much have to already be dead. Judicial discretion has produced a wide range of ruling, including decisions that rise to the level of absurdity, like the case of this Somalian man. At the same time, many judges believe that this is simply how the law should work instead of innocent until proven guilty, which would see more asylum claims believed, the system works on a principle more akin to guilty until proven innocent. That is, in fact, how the law does work. And it's not just asylum cases. One of the very first cases I had out of law school, um, it was um, this young, I, I can say kid, because he's you know, young, he's younger than my son is now. But... Um, um, this young kid who was accused of being a member of a gang. Um, and, you know, they were trying to deport him on that basis. And, um, I mean, you know, every attorney always says that their clients are choir boys. I know, but this kid was a choir boy. He yeah. really was. And he was in junior ROTC and, you know, straight A student and all this other stuff. And, I, you know, I actually had to prove in court that he was not a gang member. Now, how do you prove a negative? Right. I mean, how do you prove that somebody isn't something? And, you know, we won that case, but it was a really tough, tough struggle. This broken system has existed for decades. It is not something that magically appeared during the Trump administration. And Jill Bikindu walked right into the middle of this fractured process when he fled the threat of violence in Brazzaville. After the massacre on the beach, Gilles had returned to a relatively normal life, but he knew he would eventually have to leave the Congo as more people started asking questions about the regime's actions during his return to Brazzaville. In the process of his administrative work, Gilles applied to go to the United States to study and advance his career. Yeah, um, I got, uh, you know, uh, this opportunity to come to study in the U.S. Uh, it was uh, a study in, uh, on uh, development, uh, economic policy management. Mm -hmm. It's a program that was uh, conducted uh, at uh, Columbia 
So I got that opportunity. And uh, as a civil servant, the government was supposed to finance that. So uh, I was doing, you know, uh, all the formalities, you know, in terms of getting my papers, you know, visa and, uh, you know. So I, get, I got all my papers. So, and uh, I was waiting for, uh, like, uh, to be sure that um, the government, you know, uh, get uh, the, the finance, you know, uh, going, you know, for, for, for me. Jill could enter the United States legally on an educational visa and pursue his studies at Columbia University in New York. As we learn, he would have had a year to apply for asylum while in the United States. He would have had a year to get things in order so that he could reasonably make a good case for asylum, an extraordinarily difficult task. But then, someone started asking questions about him and his visa. You know, because it was uh, when the finance uh, uh, was about, you know, yeah. they needed to know, I mean, the government, you know, they needed to know to make sure who is this guy who, you know, we are going to finance, to finance. Because, you know, as I said, you know, Coming to the United States for people living here is it is not something ordinary, you know, I would say. Yeah. So United States in it's not it's not seen like ordinary thing, you know, normal thing. So they, they need to they, they need to know who is this guy. And uh, he's a civil servant. And who is he? Yeah. So that was uh, something that was going on. So and they, they, when they were looking, you know, and it happened, uh, they found out that I was one uh, who was incarcerated during, you know, the uh, of people from the DRC, and right. I was released, you know. When the government found out that he had witnessed the events on the Brazzaville beach and was applying for an educational visa, the government saw an opportunity for each party to come out on top. The UN was looking at what happened in the Congolese Civil War, and there were questions about what had happened on that beach. There were groups in France and other international locations advocating for the victims and their families. So the government was going to put on a nationally televised trial that would exonerate them of any wrongdoing. If Gilles played his role, they would pay for his education. So at the same time, at the same time, uh, the government was uh, with, uh, uh, pressure from the families of those who disappeared, you know, because they organized themselves to know the truth, you know, backed by uh, uh, like uh, international opinion, like uh, international association for you know human rights, things like that. So the government was pressured. And the government was trying like to organize like a trial, a trial, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, to demonstrate that, you know, uh, not kid and, uh, you know, they was not responsible for, you know, 
the disappearance of things like that. So someone like me could help. Right. You know, that I was there, I was released, and maybe I could make the, the testimony that, you know, I didn't see someone killed or things like that. But that's when, that's when, you know, I was contacted by someone, and uh, he told me that, uh, we wanna, you know, we wanna finance you, but uh, you know, we want you to uh, uh, postpone uh, your travel for next year, for example, uh, so that you can, you know, uh, participate in the trial and give your testimony. Jill refused to participate in the trial. And as his visa to the U.S. had already been approved, he fled Brazzaville, fearing reprisal. Without funding, he knew he wouldn't last very long in the U.S., but he could at least enter legally. It was a precarious situation, but Gilles refused to lie about what he had seen. Right, so they bribed you. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, something like that. So, uh, you know, uh, but the thing is, you know, I couldn't accept that, you know. Because I knew what really happened, you know. Right. I, 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 I know, and I knew. I was aware of uh, my role because, um, you know, um, I was a victim too. But does that? Uh, account kind of square with uh, the history as you know it, including what happens after the massacre on the beach uh, with the show trial and all that. Yeah, I find uh, Gilles's account in, entirely uh, consistent with my knowledge of the country. Brett Carter. I have a very good friend uh, who's about my age. He was a teenager uh, during the 1997 Civil War. He, in, a, in a separate massacre, he was lined up you know, with a group of uh, ethnic Lari uh, young men. The person in front of him was killed. The person behind him was killed. For some unknown reason, his life was saved, right? I mean, it, it, these sorts of massacres, you know, it, so it's, it's entirely plausible that, that Gilles was able to talk his way somehow out of that fate. Um, and it's entirely plausible that, you know, as a longtime civil servant, you know, he could kind of plausibly somehow persuade um, members of the Sassoon Gesso military that he was not, uh, you know, not a, not a, not sort of a, you know, not likely to take up arms against them, you know, if they were to to let him live. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it's it's Gilles's account is entirely plausible. Gilles came to the U.S. armed only with his story and the written testimony of relatives and friends. He carried with him newspaper articles from Brazzaville and elsewhere about what he had seen. But when it came time to seek asylum, it wasn't enough. First, he spoke with the asylum office mentioned by Casey Bishop in Arlington, Virginia. In his affirmative claim to asylum, Jill gave a detailed account of his own story and had direct testimony from other Congolese people. There was testimony provided by relatives still in Brazzaville that Gilles was in danger. Gilles still had in his possession, before he was detained by ICE, copies of the questionnaires he filled out with the asylum officer. The officer, 
despite the evidence, rejected his claim to asylum, and Gilles was shunted to a defensive claim in the courts, where asylum was even less likely to be granted. Eventually, his case made its way to Atlanta, where very few asylum claims are ever granted. Oh, I, I'm I'm certain that an immigration judge, you know, in, in Atlanta uh, has probably, you know, never heard of this incident. And I think it's equally likely uh, that that same immigration judge probably doesn't realize that there are two Congos, right? Um, and, you know, I, which I, you know, I think really speaks to um, just how little we invest, uh, you know, in our country's asylum process. Jill provided in his trial not just the evidence given for the initial asylum interview, but he also obtained testimony and evidence from international victims' rights organizations dedicated to the victims of the disappearance on the beach. He came with public documents from Amnesty International corroborating his story. He added to it correspondence from his email accounts where family members told him not to return to Brazzaville because government officials had come looking for him including this account from a family member in late 2004. The whole family is happy to know you are secure in the USA, especially mom was worried. God be blessed to know you are in good health. You know, in addition to the visit of armed people at home on July 15th, they came back again searching the house and getting some of your documents. They were threatening and furious. It happened on Monday, the 22nd of November. We keep on praying to God for you. Be well, Jill. The whole family hugs you. Despite all the evidence Jill supplied, the asylum case was not granted. In fact, one of the reasons given by the immigration court for the denial was, quote, lack of details on material points, and that he had not been consistent enough in his written testimony and oral testimony about what had happened to him. He was allowed to appeal but asylum was never granted. Uh, given all the stuff that we've talked about, given the fact that Jill is uh, an ethnic lorry, that he, um, uh, given his claim that he was arrested during the massacre on the beach uh, and then bribed to perjure himself, I mean, in your expert opinion, does he meet the standard to be granted asylum? I, th I think absolutely he does. Brett Carter. I've submitted uh, statements in about 30 or so similar asylum cases over the past six or seven years. Uh, all of those, is, all of those, to my knowledge, uh, have been successful. I mean, in my knowledge, uh, they were certainly, I think, you know, deserving of um, of asylum. I think Gilles' case is every bit as strong um, as any of the other uh, 30 or so cases um, in which I participated over the past six or seven years. Um, it frankly, I, I I find it I find it scandalous um, that that his uh, asylum appeal was was apparently you know so easily denied. Um, I think it's really a miscarriage of justice. Gilles' case is like thousands of others in an asylum system that doesn't make room for people with credible claims. Track, which analyzes asylum claims data over time, has seen this situation only get worse in recent years. Under the Obama administration, denial rates of asylum claims were still high, but fluctuated between 50 and 55 percent over the eight years. 
In just two years of the Trump administration, the denial rate has increased to an average of 65% across the country. It's really, really hard. And, uh, yeah, really, really hard. I was kind of hopeful, you know, I was kind of hopeful. Frankly, you know, as an American citizen, I really believe that we owe more um, to people who uh, who file for asylum, right, and 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 who seek um, who seek protection uh, from the United States. I mean, we, we talk a lot about our country's own ideals, right, the ideals on which we were founded, um, and it seems to me that um, offering refuge uh, to to citizens um, who have endured so much and who um, would likely experience those same tragedies if they were forced to return to me. I, I think that we owe them that um, as Americans. Next time on Inhospitable. Can you describe Stewart Detention Facility? What was it like, the one in Georgia? Uh, I mean, it's... Uh... Condition, right? So, yeah. you know, but uh, it's not like uh, they beat you or something like that, but uh, yeah. We'll enter the realities of detention centers in the U.S. and the massive profits made from the immigrants imprisoned in them. Inhospitable is a production of Greenwood Forest Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina. If you'd like more information about the podcast, you can visit inhospitableusa.org or follow us on Twitter at inhospitableusa. After the first episode, many of you asked how you could give to support Jill, so we've added a link at inhospitableusa.org for you to be able to do that. Thank you. And special thanks to Marty Rosenbluth, Brett Carter, and Casey Bishop for their interviews for this episode. You can find Brett Carter at brettlogancarter.org, Marty Rosenbluth at polancolawpc.com, and Casey Bishop at the faculty page at the UNC School of Law. <laughs>